Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number two, Michael Pardo, Group Agency and Legal Proof. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Mike Pardo. Mike is the Sims Professor of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law, where he has taught evidence, procedure, and jurisprudence. Mike's scholarship often takes a philosophical or epistemological perspective on issues in evidence. I've known Mike for almost as long as I've been in the legal academy, and I've always found his work careful, incisive, and thought-provoking. His current article, entitled Group Agency and Legal Proof, or Why the Jury is an It, was recently published in the William & Mary Law Review. In his article, Mike looks at aggregation rules, or the voting mechanisms through which juries decide cases. These voting rules create some curious and counterintuitive paradoxes, particularly when jurors vote on multiple issues. Mike surveys these problems, and then offers some suggestions on how the legal system might get around them. All right, so Mike, thanks for coming on to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about group agency. Is there really such a thing, or is group agency just the sum of individuals acting as agents? Well, so this is a large problem, and there's really two schools of thought about this. There's a sort of reductivist view that basically posits that there really is no such thing as group agency. Group agency really is just the sum of the individual parts. There's another tradition focusing on the ways in which a group may express or manifest agency in ways that differ from the individual parts. In this piece, I adopt that second position, relying on some recent philosophical work by Philip Pettit and Christian List, among others, arguing that there really is a phenomenon of group agency that differs from the agency of individual members, in this case, the, the jury. And so you, you call this the non-summative model? Yes, correct. So can you give us an example of that? It's a little counterintuitive, right? So how is it possible that the group will decide one thing, whereas the individuals largely decide something else? Well, so there's a lot of complexity going on here. There's nothing really mysterious about it. What it really has to do with is the fact that it's not just individual beliefs or judgments at issue. It's also some rule or some aggregation function that tells you how to put those pieces together. And depending on how you change that rule, you may change the group result. So just for a simple example, suppose you have the difference between a unanimous voting rule versus a majority voting rule. In a situation where you have three people voting, two vote one way, one votes another way, you have a group outcome under one of those situations, the majority voting rule, but you don't yet have an outcome under the unanimous voting rule. So that's one situation where the votes or the individuals, individual judgments stay the same, but the outcome changes based upon the aggregation rule. So there you have inconclusive versus an, an actual decision. Is there a setup where you could actually have a different decision? There is, yes. So something called uh, the doctrinal paradox, which was first posed, I believe, by Kornhauser and Sager in the legal literature, but also by List and Pettit in the philosophical literature. They extend this idea to something called the doctrinal paradox. 
And this sort of difference that you're talking about can really arise any time you have an outcome that's based on two sub-issues or two sub-premises. So for example, suppose you have a three-judge panel deciding a case and the outcome in the case depends upon two sub-issues, say A and B. You might ask these two or three judges, has the party bringing the appeal proven or satisfied these two particular issues, A and B? And two people might say no, and one says yes, A and B are both proven. Now, look at the two who both said no. One might say no because A isn't proven, and the other one might say no because B isn't proven. So now let's think about aggregation functions. If you were to just ask them, who should win here? Should the person who has to prove A and B win? Two would say no. But if you were to go issue by issue, two judges say yes to A, two judges say yes to B, in which case that person wins. So the outcome here changes depending upon whether the aggregation rule is two issues as a whole or claim as a whole on one hand or issue by issue on the other hand. And this extends not just to legal issues, but anytime you have logically connected propositions, different aggregation rules will produce different outcomes. And that creates all of these sort of strange and sometimes mysterious results in which what the group ends up doing may differ from what individuals are doing. So in many ways, it's all about the aggregation rule that is to blame. So in, in your example, because you're aggregating on the basis of issues, you end up with A and B being proven to a majority, and then you aggregate those two and you say that the plaintiff wins. If you don't aggregate and you actually have the judge's rule in each case as a whole, then you end up with two no votes and then you end up with a no entirely. So are there aggregation rules that avoid this problem? It would seem that unanimity rules would avoid this problem entirely. Well, so let me back up just a second here. So you're right that the aggregation rule is the problem in many instances, but it's also the solution in many instances. It's what allows the group to express or to do something that no individual can do by themselves. The right votes or the right judgments arranged in the right sorts of ways allows the group to do things like constitute a verdict, constitute an opinion, do something as a group. Now, some rules create certain problems like a non-unanimous voting rule, you can still have similar kinds of problems even under a unanimous voting rule. So if you're talking now about legal proof, thinking about juries, as you know, burdens of proof and standards of proof apply to individual elements of a claim, of a crime, or an affirmative defense. And so you could have unanimous judgments about each of those elements, but still fail to have a verdict because you have massive disagreement among decision makers about the theories, the means that constitute those individual elements. So you still get these same kinds of problems, even if everyone on the jury, say, concludes each of these elements has been proven, they may do so for different reasons. And so you can still get sort of group agency problems going on below the surface, even in that instance. So this is a really interesting area, a lot of weird things going on. In many ways, I think that a lot of your work often deals with these weird paradoxes. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank uh, you. So one of the main points of your paper, as I understand it, is that some of these paradoxes, sort of these group paradoxes, can be solved by adopting an explanatory model of proof. So to the extent that you have these problems with jury decision making or in your attempt to prove cases, if you adopt an explanatory model, which is a model that you and, and Ron Allen have proposed and supported for quite some time now, 
you can avoid them. So first, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about what the explanatory model is and then how it's different from the ordinary model of proof. Okay, so by the ordinary model of proof, I assume you mean a sort of probabilistic model. And under this conception of the proof process, you have individual elements of a claim, of a crime, or a defense, and the standards of proof like preponderance of the evidence or beyond a reasonable doubt or clear and convincing evidence are constituted by certain probabilistic thresholds. Let's say preponderance means 0.5, and what it means to prove that element is to prove some fact beyond that probabilistic threshold. So the account or the conception that Ron Allen and I have developed sort of rejects that way of conceptualizing the proof process and sees it rather as a process in which decision makers assess competing explanations of the evidence and the events and the quality of an explanation needed depends on the standard, higher standards like beyond a reasonable doubt need a higher explanatory threshold than, say, a preponderance of the evidence. In, say, a simple civil case under the preponderance standard, essentially what's going on is two sides are offering competing explanations as to what happened. The decision maker is deciding whichever of those they consider to be a better explanation and then examining whether that better explanation includes the individual elements. So part of what I argue in this paper, drawing on some prior literature, is that a lot of the weird things going on, as you described it, or the weird paradoxes that are going on, follow from this probabilistic way of thinking about proof. And a lot of these strange apparent occurrences can be softened or alleviated by adopting this explanatory conception. So go back to the situation I described a few moments ago. You might have a situation where all the jurors believe a particular element has been proven to some probabilistic threshold. Under the probabilistic conception, that would imply that they've reached a verdict on that particular element. But we know that that's not right because they might be disagreeing about the theory, the explanation being advanced by the parties. And so they really haven't yet arrived at a unanimous verdict. The way the explanatory account response to that is saying jurors do have to agree on something. What they have to agree on is a particular explanation. Now it can get complicated because that can be in the alternative, but if they agree on an explanation and then apply the standard of proof, it helps to soften or eliminate some of these strange consequences. So you've set up the problem. You've sort of set up this doctrinal paradox or discursive dilemma, and then you've offered a way out. This explanatory model is a way out. All of that is quite conceptual. So what I want to do is I want to ground this a little bit in real world implications and see how your insights parse out. So first, let's take a look at sufficiency questions, which is something you discuss at length in the paper. Sufficiency meaning the no rational jury standard. Here, one thing that I somewhat learned from your paper was that to my mind, I had never been really clear about whether it was no rational juror could possibly find versus no rational jury could find. And as I understand it, the Supreme Court has actually ruled that it is no rational jury as a group rather than the individual. Yeah, so that's exactly right. When we're talking about sufficiency of the evidence, both in civil cases, whether a reasonable jury could find for a party by a preponderance of the evidence, or in criminal cases, whether a reasonable jury could find for the prosecution beyond a reasonable doubt. The courts there are looking at the jury as a group and assessing sufficiency of the evidence, not whether individual jurors might be justified or not in reaching particular conclusions. And you can actually get situations where, from an epistemological standpoint, 
the jury as a group is justified, some individual jurors might not be, and vice versa. You could have situations where epistemically individual jurors might be justified in reaching a conclusion, but the jury as a whole is not under this sufficiency standard. Essentially what the law does is adopt a rule-based conception of justification here. Sufficiency of the evidence is judged based on what the evidence is and whether the jury as a group could reach a particular outcome in light of the burden and standard of proof. What are the implications of your work here for the sufficiency standard then? So you've developed this whole theory about group agency. How does that work or how does that inform how we think about the sufficiency standard? So one thing that the explanatory account of proof does in a way that I think probabilistic standards cannot is give judges some criteria to assess the sufficiency of the evidence. Essentially, what judges should be doing there is seeing whether a jury could reasonably or rationally find some explanation to be better than another explanation if it's a civil case, if we're looking at a criminal case and beyond a reasonable doubt, we should be looking at whether there's a whether a reasonable jury could find a plausible prosecution explanation and no plausible defense explanation. And the explanatory criteria like how well the evidence fits with a party's explanation, the assumptions that have to be made, possible inconsistencies in a particular account, could be reasons or ways a, ju a judge could conclude a particular explanation is reasonable or not. And in the paper and in some other work, I provide examples of cases where courts have said, look, if you want to buy this particular explanation this party's giving you, you have to believe all these other things. We know these other things are true, and so that's just not a plausible explanation anymore. Alternatively, courts could say, well, here's an explanation, and by itself, maybe it doesn't look that great. Maybe it seems really unlikely, but we've eliminated all the other possible explanations, and once we've eliminated these alternatives, then a reasonable jury could find this other one to be plausible. So what the explanatory conception does is provide some vocabulary for talking about reasonable and unreasonable inferences beyond just attaching some probabilistic number to these conclusions. Now, how does this work, or how does this cash out between the individuals on the jury, so the juror standard, versus the jury standard? Is there going to be a difference in the way that the judge is applying the standard, given the explanatory model and all the rest of it? So there's not going to be a difference at the level of the relationship between the explanation and the evidence. That's going to exist regardless of whether we're talking about individuals, where we're talking about jurors. Where this could become a problem is looking at the explanations being offered by the parties and the instructions that were given to the jury. So where you could have a problem is where one party, say the prosecution, argues in the alternative. For example, the defendant is guilty of first-degree murder either under a felony murder theory or under an intentional premeditation theory. And where you could have a sort of aggregation or a group agency problem is if some jurors think the defendant's guilty under one theory but not the other. Other jurors think one theory, the opposite theory, but not the other. And so what you'd want to be focusing on from a court perspective is what sort of explanations were advanced by the parties and what sort of instructions were given to the jury. Could you have one of these situations where the jurors really have failed to come to an agreement about the appropriate explanation? This case of murder versus felony murder. Now, if I remember correctly, this is in Shad v. Arizona, right? Correct. So perhaps you can give us a little bit of a background on that case first, and then let's see how it all cashes out there. 
Okay, so the defendant in the case was convicted of first-degree murder, and during the trial, the prosecution advanced two different theories or two different means by which the defendant allegedly committed the crime. Either the defendant committed intentional, premeditated murder, or alternatively, the defendant was engaged in a burglary or robbery and committed murder. In that context, the jury was instructed that they could find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder under either of those two theories. The defense argued all the way to the Supreme Court that this was a constitutional due process problem and that really the problem was he hadn't been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt under a particular theory. And the argument was this is a problem because the jury might not have agreed on one of those two alternatives. The Supreme Court ended up concluding both in a plurality opinion and then a concurrence joined by Justice Scalia that that this was not in fact a constitutional problem, that the, the alternative theory was constitutional. But the dissent there, was the dissent in that case wrong then, that to your mind, Arizona should have been allowed to combine the two theories of the case? Well, so I think both opinions were wrong there. So I think there's really, and we don't, we don't really know what the jury did in this particular case and whether they agreed. That's why this group agency problem is so deep and so so hard to get at. So there are really two different models you might employ here. You can employ a formal elements model. Just give the jury the elements of a crime or a cause of action and let them agree or not, depending on how many theories, even if they all have different theories as to why, so long as the elements are proven, that's enough. Let's call that the formal elements model. Alternatively, we can adopt a single theory model that in order to, f to find a crime proven beyond a reasonable doubt or a civil cause of action proven by a preponderance, the prosecution or the plaintiff has to offer a single theory and the jurors have to agree on that. I think both of those extremes are wrong. I think the right answer is somewhere in between. What jurors have to agree on in both instances is an explanation. That explanation could be disjunctive. It could be an either-or situation. So part of what I'm doing here is extending some work, a sort of great article written by Peter Weston and Eric O oh talking about Shad and some other cases, where they come up with what I think is a solution in criminal cases and talking about alleged means. What the jury should have been told there is you could find unanimously either under either of these two theories. In other words, if you don't think the defendant committed felony murder, it was probably intentional murder. And if it wasn't intentional murder, then it was probably felony murder. It's okay to agree on that. What would be a problem, though, is if some jurors thought felony murder but not intentional murder and other jurors thought intentional murder but not felony murder. That sort of disagreement means you don't yet have a verdict. Another way of putting that, so I would extend that idea to explanations, is say they haven't yet agreed on an explanation. It's possible for the jury to agree in a case A or B combined is a better explanation than C. But where you have a failure is when you have some jurors who think A but not B and others who think B but not A. The result there should be further deliberation. We haven't yet satisfied the aggregation rule, in other words. So in other words, A, say, is first degree, B is felony murder, and C is he wasn't there. It was the defendant's story. Sure. And so it is fine as long as A is greater than C and B is greater than C, but or, or A is has better explanatory power than C, however you want to phrase this, or B is 
has greater explanatory power than C, as long as C never inserts itself between A and B, because then we can't tell? I think that's basically right. Let me give you a non-legal example. Suppose I, suppose I only get allergic reactions in one of two situations, either if I eat almonds or if I eat peanuts. And I'm not allergic to anything else. And now suppose I have an allergic reaction and I just ate something. And we're trying to explain why I had this reaction. And one person might say, well, it's because there was shellfish in the thing that he ate, which I know I'm not allergic to. And someone else might say, explanation too, no, it was almonds or peanuts, a disjunctive either or explanation. That's a better explanation than the shellfish explanation, even if we can't say which of those two is correct. We think their combination is better than the first. And so you could have a situation where people converge on that explanation and say that's better, almonds or peanuts, even though we, if it wasn't peanuts, it must have been almonds. And if it wasn't almonds, it must have been peanuts. That's a better explanation. Now, that's a different situation than some jurors saying, now taking it to a legal context, it was almonds, but definitely not peanuts. It was peanuts, but definitely not almonds. In that situation, they haven't agreed on anything. When are these disjunctive theories impermissible? Is it the way that the jury finds them? So in the way that if the jury pulls the disjunction apart, then they become illegitimate, even though it is okay to offer the disjunctive as in the first instance? So parties are generally allowed to, con to contrast their cases or construct their cases in their own ways. And the substantive law often allows parties to argue in the alternative even inconsistent theories can be advanced. The trick is finding some way to convey to the jury exactly what it is they have to agree upon. And you have cases where some courts say you have to agree on a particular theory, say a particular disjunct of a disjunction. Other courts say you can disagree so long as you agree on the elements. I'm saying those extremes are both problematic. You need to find some way to convey exactly the kind of agreement that's necessary, which is convergence on an explanation in the way that I just explained it, say with the almonds versus peanuts example. The trick is to find a way to convey to the jury when it's okay for them to agree and when it's okay for them not to agree. And the way you might do that is by giving them examples of the explanations that were offered by the party. So you could say in a case like the Shad case, you have two different theories as to alleged by the prosecution as to why the defendant's guilty of first-degree murder. Here are the, all the ways you could agree. You might agree on this theory. You might agree on the second theory. You might agree that if it wasn't the first theory, it must have been the second theory. You might agree on part of that. Or if you disagree in the following way, here's an example of where you haven't reached sufficient agreement. Some of you think it's this theory, but not this theory. Others of you think it's the second theory, but not the first. If you find yourself in that kind of disagreement, continue to deliberate. And, and I think this is, this is a great note to wrap up on. So here, what you have is a jury instruction showing the jurors how they would be able to... You, you have a, a dis, this disjunctive theory, and you're going to tell the jury, okay, look, if you find in this way this disjunctive theory is the one that you want to select that's okay. But then there are other ones which are not. And these are not necessarily things that are intuitively obvious from the get-go. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And this is a problem that could affect both plaintiffs, defendants, prosecution, defendants, anytime you have alternative theories. And so in addition to courts, it could be to the party's advantage to figure out where you might have these kind of problems and come up with an effective way to convey the problem to the jury. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Mike. A very interesting article, and we look forward to your works in the future. Great. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. It's hard to do justice to Mike's intricate article in a podcast segment. So if he has piqued your interest, I highly recommend giving it a read. The article, as is often the case with his research, is filled with fascinating and paradoxical hypotheticals. And at least for me, it forced me to think more deeply about how the group nature of the jury significantly complicates the burden of proof. His article also raises tough questions about how to handle disjunctive theories of a case, as in, when a party argues in the alternative. These were the almonds and peanuts examples that Mike referred to. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Excited Utterance is sponsored in part through a grant from the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.